The future of work. Everyone is talking about it, but what does it really mean? And specifically, what does it mean for North America? My name is Richard Miles, the host of 35 West. My guest today is Ambassador Tony Wayne. Mr. Ambassador, welcome. Thanks, Richard. It's a pleasure to be with you. So, uh, you, this is the first time on the show. So, Tony, if you could just sort of give us the Tony Wayne story in a minute or less. You know, feel free to start at the very beginning. Where you know, where you're from? Uh, where'd you grow up? Uh, you know, what what your parents do? Tell us a little bit about sort of your pre-foreign service career, and then maybe a little bit about uh, your actual career as a diplomat. Okay. Well, I grew up in Northern California in a, a modest town, a modest neighborhood. My dad was uh, trained as an accountant. My mom was a voice teacher. And uh, I started getting interested in international things. And so at first I thought maybe I wanted to be a professor. And uh, so went through undergraduate, then went to some graduate school, and then decided, no, I, I wanted to try to be a diplomat. So I came into the U.S. Foreign Service. That's the diplomatic corps of the United States. 1975 and stayed with it until 2015 and uh, had a lot of great opportunity to get to know other countries and practice diplomacy. Um, Tony, what was your very first Foreign Service assignment? Everyone, all the FSOs know that your best stories come from like your first two assignments. So what, where were you stationed? Well, the first two, the first one was actually in Washington and I was an analyst of China and it's when Mao Zedong died. So it was a pretty exciting time. And then I went to Morocco, and I was a political officer at our embassy there, which meant I got to learn about Morocco and Moroccan society and what was going on, and that was a lot of fun. And that led to a, a great series of jobs, both in Washington and in other countries overseas, and I ended up, with my last post was U.S. Ambassador to Mexico. And if I recall correctly, you were an economics officer, or you started out sort of an economics Cone is what they called it then. I don't know what they call it now, right? Well, I did become the Assistant Secretary for Economic and Business Affairs. I did that for six years, but I actually started as a political oh, officer. okay. All right. And then I discovered how important economics are to our foreign policy and our international relationship. And so I shifted over to that direction to try and help highlight the importance of that for America. All right. Let's talk about uh, something that does matter and in the economic sphere, and that is um, – a report or a paper that you have just uh, released uh, along with the Wilson Center, your colleagues at the Wilson Center, um, basically on jobs and employment and specifically um, jobs and employment in North America, so Canada, uh, Mexico, and the United States. And before we sort of get into the, the details of the report, which is, which is excellent, by the way, the title for listeners who'd like to consult is a North American Workforce Development Agenda, available at the Wilson Center uh, website. But why, um, Tony, why does this issue matter in the broader context? Why, why do jobs and workforce development matter to societies and, and at a political level? Well, we were led to take this deeper look at this area because of all the debate about trade and all the debate about NAFTA. And as we started thinking about it and looking more closely at the data, it became clear that a lot of stuff was being blamed on trade that really wasn't the cause of trade. There were There's a lot of churning that was going on in our economy, but much of that was because of changes in technology and production processes. And then trade came into that and global competition came into it. But you weren't going to solve these problems either by just fixing trade agreements because the real causes were much more complex and they are very much tied into what makes a country competitive in the global economy. And so one of the things is how well are your workers trained 
do you help them when there are changes in your economy so they lose their jobs? And so all these millions of people who lost their jobs in the United States during this century really was was for a bunch of reasons, but it, in large part it was because there was a, a public policy failure. There weren't good policies thinking about our workforce, thinking about the workers and how you help them. Some of that was trade, but a lot of it was that just when a, an industry might move from one state to another, the people who had been working for that industry in the original state were sort of left aside by the marketplace, and there were no public policies to really help them. We we discovered as we looked into it, compared to some other countries. And then we saw the same thing was happening all over the world. And so we thought, let's look at this more closely. Let's see if we can come up with some, some good ideas. And that led us to this report. Um, good. So, yeah, if I could just sum up, I, I think what I, I hear you saying is that although trade does affect uh, jobs and employment, it's it's not the only thing, and maybe not even the most important thing going on when we look at you know whole sectors of the economy shrinking or other ones growing. If that's more or less a that, fair statement, that's it. And in fact, just one study, because I like facts and studies, uh, a really serious American economic study found that about eighty five percent of the jobs lost between two thousand and two thousand ten were because of technology and process changes. Not because not trade. of trade. So trade, that would mean, was 15% or so. So we really misfocused. And if you don't get the analysis right, then you, you come up with the wrong solutions. So it's a, trade is a factor, but it's not even the, by, by any means the most important one. Um, your, your report talks about you identify three problems, three broad problems. Um, and let's sort of go through those one by one. And then, then we'll sort of look at your proposals for solutions. Uh, one, you talk about an alarming skills gap. Um, two, you talk about economic and technological transformations. And then three, something sort of you identify as priority investment. So let's start with skills gap. When you talk about a skills gap, what does that mean? That means that employers can't find the people to hire that have the skills they need for the job that's vacant. And so right now we have between six and seven million vacancies in the country and many of the employers say they can't find the right people to fill those, even though there are about that many people on the unemployment rolls. Those people don't have those skills. And so right now, and for the past few years, we've already been suffering in our economy from these gaps. It's about 40% of, employer, of employers in the U.S. say they can't find the people they need. And that's gotten worse now that we have a, a job market that's even tighter. As our economy has grown, the best qualified people in the unemployed areas are being hired. There's more training going on by businesses, but still there's this big, big gap. gap. And are, do those tend to be focused in a particular uh, sector of the economy, the, the ones in which there are not enough people to fill the jobs? They tend is widespread. Even... Entry-level jobs now require a certain amount of digital skills, for example. So even these really what you think is very common jobs easy to fill, a lot of the people that come in and apply for the jobs don't even don't have the basic skills to use the iPad or the new, you know, which is now used instead of a cash register or other things, right. just as an example. And then one of the biggest gaps is in drivers, people to do uh, driving deliveries either locally or across states in the United States, a tremendous shortage of drivers. So it goes across the whole spectrum to the very 
well-trained, uh, you know, computer programmers and things. And and then what people found is they also need to have people who are good with good people skills, people who can work with others. So a lot of times you'll get a really brilliant person doing something, but if they can't work with the team, it doesn't work for the company. So they're seeking people with hard skills and soft skills, and they're learning they now have to hire people and then train them in some of both of those skills. Um, so the, uh, in the agricultural sector, we've seen this for a number of years, right? Sort of not enough people to harvest fruit or, or whatnot. And then in, um, it seems like in some of the very low-skilled service sector jobs, you know, uh, retail. Um, so but, but what you're saying is also it's not really just a question of wages per se, right? It, that, uh, you know, because the, the knock on, on, on those who dislike – particularly, um, you know, jobs moving across the border is what companies really want is just cheap labor. Um, but this is something different, right? It's even even at a good price, you're still not finding people who have the skills to do the job that you actually want done. That's, cor- that's right, Richard. And there are two aspects to it. One is that people don't want to do certain jobs, which is why it leads us to the immigration debate and temporary workers. And the other one is that people can't do the jobs for either lifestyle problems, they don't want to work late, they don't want to work weekends, they don't have the skills, they have other things that, you know, they have drug abuse, they don't pass the drug test. So there are a lot of reasons that people just can't be hired by the companies because they're looking for a quality workforce. And that happens in all these different levels of skills and in all sorts of different sectors. So since we have such a complex economy, you have complex needs. And that's why you need a whole set of different approaches to help fill those jobs and make our economy stronger. Right. So not not just way, uh, raising wages, for instance. So that, that feeds into the, the second problem that you identify, and that's economic and technological transformation. So in, in a, if I understand that correctly, in a fundamental way, our economy – has changed and is changing in the types of uh, technologies that that uh, employers are using and need their their workers to be skilled in. That's right, and we all see it by how much we use our uh, iPhones or other uh, variations of that every day now, which we did not do before. But what studies are showing is that this change is just going to continue. And it's going to reinvent jobs, and it's going to change jobs. A number of studies have suggested that, it, for example, that all around the world, about 15% of the workers are going to have to change their jobs over the next 20 years. And then another one-third or so of existing jobs are just going to be reinvented. They'll have a little bit of the stuff that's the same, but you're going to have to have all sorts of new skills. So if you don't have abilities to retrain people built into the systems, built into your normal operating procedures, you're going to cause a lot of disruption both to companies and to individual workers. And then you see the kind of political reaction, which we've experienced in the United States and other places where people feel left behind and alienated. So we should start getting ahead of that right now. And that's why there's much more attention in the United States, but also internationally to this whole jobs of the future. And it seems like you you also have to change, in, in a way, the mindset of people, because you're not just saying, hey, you need to learn this new skill. 
you have to uh, also show that this new skill you're learning today in five years may be obsolete and you have to learn another one. I, I just think of, you know, all the things that we've seen come and go just in the last less than 20 years. You know, anybody who would who'd say, well, gosh, now I've got a now I know how to work a Palm Pilot. I'm good to go. Uh, you know, back in whatever, 2002 or pre-iPhone. Um, but the lot, scores of examples of that in which we master one technology only to find that it's essentially you know useless five years later. That's right. So that that points you to the fact that you have to change some of that the basic education approaches for young people. You have to be working with uh, a little older people and then middle aged and older people and get them all just to be thinking. You can and you need to keep learning as you go forward. And what we've seen is people do do it and they can do it very well. But there's this built-in resistance with many of us to to changing. Well, just to be clear, Tony, we're talking about people older than ourselves, right? Because, of course, we, we are comfortable and adapt rapidly to technology. It's, it's only those older, older guys, not us. Um, all right. Th- third problem you identify is something that uh, I just wrote down here, sort of priority investment. And I'm not even sure what that means as I wrote it down. So what do we – when you say priority investment, is that that uh, sort of governments or society as a whole needs to put a lot more – money into this whole notion of shifting mindsets and training up people in technologies and so on? It is. Some countries are are really doing this very well. For example, the Economist Intelligence Unit did a study recently about which countries are best prepared for artificial intelligence and automation to come. And they found South Korea was number one that they, they've invested a lot in their education system and their business models of building this in all the way through and at all different levels. Uh, the United States was number nine, um, and then others were way down below. Uh, so the worry is that if we don't start investing in the private sector, investing in education, investing in in government programs, and we can talk about this, there's some ways governments can support this. Not they're going to do everything, but they there are certain roles that where the government should step in, either federal or state or local. They can be very helpful. Um, we're going to face these big problems. And what that means is you just have to change your mindsets. You have to have a lot more collaboration between business, education, private sector, unions, NGOs, others to make this work. You've got to find the best practices and then copy them for your own locality, um, whether it's a city, a state, or, or between countries. And that is really the challenge right now in front of us. There was a survey recently of a lot of CEOs, and they all said, yeah, we see that this new in- Industry 4.0, is, the waves are coming. But are we ready? I don't think so. And this is uh, obviously something that, that isn't a, a one-off deal where, like, okay, we're going to invest a billion dollars and we're done here. This is a really just a continuous process where communities and states are going to have to do this again and again, sort of set up this cycle, right, of, of just continually trying to make sure everyone has updated skills and so you're, on. You're exactly right. Um, all right. So the report, uh, you don't just complain about these problems. You actually list sort of four specific recommendations or areas in which – uh, if, if we're trying to uh, update or train better the workforce in North America, um, and the four areas you talk about work-based learning, uh, credentials, data collection, and then preparing for change. Now, we're policy wonks and we love this sort of stuff, but what does that mean to the real person? What is work-based learning, for instance? Well, first just to mention, so what we did to prepare this is we had a, a bunch of discussions with people who've been working on this 
all across the United States, from Mexico and Canada. And just to add, the reason we chose Mexico and Canada is that they're our two largest partners of building things together. Under the North America Free Trade Agreement, we now build all sorts of things with our neighbors. And particularly Mexico, about 40% of any manufactured good that comes from Mexico is really U.S. product, U.S. material. So we need to talk to them and, and, and look at their interests and needs, too, as we're thinking about the future. Because if we're going to compete with China and others, there are certain things that we, we're going to need help. And to, that's what makes do. this a, a continental problem, not just sort of a, strictly speaking, a city or state issue. Exactly. That's why we, we really have, we have an interest in the United States being more competitive, but in order for the U.S. to be more competitive, North America has to be more competitive, too. So when we did this, we came up with these four areas after we talked to all the experts. So work-based learning... Most people know it as a think about apprenticeships. Apprenticeships are when you start in high school, going and working part time, or maybe in junior college, and have classes and learn on the job. But that's really for people mostly coming into the workforce. You also have now the need, as we can see, to retrain people maybe a week, maybe two weeks, or maybe a six month course during their career. So they can pick up these new skills. And right now, we aren't really good at apprenticeship, and we are not very good at all on this mid-career learning or late-career learning. And so, for example, if an industry moves away, what happens to those people who are left behind and can't or don't want to leave their community? Are there good programs to help them? In some communities, yes, but in most communities, sadly, no, in the United States. In other countries, there are different examples where they've adjusted to this. So our argument is this should be one of the areas where we look for best practices, where we see how we can strengthen these systems and build off the examples that are really working in the U.S., but also in other countries. Then the second area is is credentials. And what that means is when you've taken a course, do you get a certificate that other people say, oh yeah, this show this is valuable. It shows you have this skill or not. And right now we don't have in the United States a lot of credentials that are recognized widely. So if you take a wonderful course here in Washington, DC that teaches you how to do a specialized computer accounting system, that might be recognized elsewhere or it might not be. So if you can get a mutual recognition system set up, and this could be public or private or both, where somebody in Nevada would say, wow, Richard, that's a great certificate. I'm going to hire you because I know uh, you'll meet my needs. So just to clarify then, when we're talking about credentials here, we're not talking in this instance about a college degree, for instance, necessarily. What we're talking about is a very specific uh, tangible skill like, uh, you know, the ability to do work with spreadsheets or the, if, if you have a certain ability as an electrician or a plumber or, or whatnot that, that acts like a certification of a certain – you've hit a certain standard within that field that supposedly that skill is portable to some other employer. It would cover all of those. All of those. Like, okay. sure, a bachelor's degree or a Ph.D. is one. But then you have a lot of other very specific training skills that you can learn. And as people say, you can stack them 
during your career, you can get more of these certifications, and then that makes you more valuable as an employee. And the degree to which other people will recognize them, and that's what this discussion would be about. How do you do that? It makes it easier for you as a worker to get good jobs and to be able to be mobile also if you have to be mobile. It's also a way for companies to reward their workers and give them a career path so they're not stuck in the same job for 40 years. But they're, they chose that they're, they're, they're gaining expertise. So I imagine this area is going to probably draw uh, some attention in that it kind of exposes some of the problems with our, our current system of higher education. I'll, I'll throw in one anecdote. I, I was talking to, this a couple of years ago, um, the president of a, of a community college in the town where I'm from, from Gainesville, Florida, and he was telling me that their highest uh, growth in students was from people who had four-year degrees coming back to community college, quote, to learn something useful. <laughs> These were his words. You know, to get a very specific um, two-year degree or, or less, I suppose, in a very specific skill that they felt was going to be more valuable to them than a Bachelor of Arts or Bachelor of Science. So um, this seems to be the direction in which you're recommending that uh, everyone in sort of all sectors and of all ages have demonstrable uh, the ability to get demonstrable credentials on very specific skills as opposed to just, you, you know, you're not sure exactly, for instance, someone with a BA or BS, what does it, exactly does that mean? That's exactly right. Now, that doesn't mean nobody should get BAs right, or BSs right. or PhDs. They should. But you have to have these other channels because everybody doesn't need those. And then even if you have those advanced degrees, it might not be BNF, good enough yeah. for you to get the jobs that are available. And so educational institutions have to adapt. And the best ones adapting have been junior colleges or two-year community colleges or some of the specialized private sector colleges that have developed with very uh, identifiable courses. But we need all of those in this new society we're discovering. And if we don't have it, we're just going to suffer. Let's go on to your third recommendation deals with data collection and transparency. And uh, at, at, the, at the event in which you rolled out the report, you had a, you had a fascinating panelist from LinkedIn. Um, that that I didn't even, I know obviously of LinkedIn I know how big they are but it didn't occur to me until I, I heard it that they play this very useful data collection role in sort of identifying uh, where the jobs are and where the potential candidates for those jobs are and even better sort of the skill sets of those on both sides of the equation the skills needed for a given position and the skills offered by uh, you know, job seekers. So w tell us about what is the, why is data collection important to this whole argument of workforce development? Well, one example I, I always like is all of us in high school had a, a counselor, right? And that counselor would sort of try to advise you on what you should study and what you should do next. But the counselor had no access. Even today, they don't have access to what are the real job needs out there in the country. What are they going to be in five years? Because there's not an easily available system that says there's a shortage in these five areas. And in five years, the studies suggest they're going to be in these areas. And this is the kind of training you need in each of these areas. Or for a, a, a worker who's lost their job and is trying to figure out, okay, what's available in my city, but maybe what's available nearby and where can I, what kind of pay can I get? LinkedIn does offer some of that, but 
there's not a national database that's easily available even to LinkedIn or others to sort of mine for that really tremendously important information to help people learn what to study, where to look for jobs, what kind of jobs are going to pay well, do we think, in the next five and ten years. And this is where government, working with the private sector, can be really helpful because they collect a lot of the basic data, but it's really hard to get to. And so if we can find ways to get this data collected and then be easily accessible by people, understandable, so they could just go on their home computer and log into a couple different places and start getting some ideas, that will be really helpful for our current workers and our future workers and for, for people asking, where should I go study? What should I study? And my sense on this is that we're, we're probably almost there, right? Because it, you can already see these platforms that exist in terms of the ability to collect massive amounts of data, slice it and dice it, and then you know flip it back to the user in, in a very uh, accessible way. Um, so I, I imagine you know this mix of sort of a public-private effort to both collect and disseminate the data on where the jobs are, what the skills that are needed, and you know what sort of training you need is hopefully right around the corner. Yeah, I think we could do it. It's just people giving it a priority. Uh, Last week, President Trump announced a new uh, effort in this jobs area for focused on the American workplace. And one of the areas they mentioned is the need to sort through the data problems and make make that data better available to people. Um, All right, let's real quickly talk about your sort of your fourth recommendation, kind of a big picture, preparing for change to talk about the the fourth industrial revolution. What what does that mean? That basically goes back to some of the ideas you've mentioned earlier, which is this technology is going to keep rapidly changing, that we have to make our systems much more adaptable and flexible. And that means in the private sector, in the, in the educational institutions, in universities and colleges, and in government. Because new skills are going to start popping up all the time and more rapidly. So we have to figure out in a company, for example, they have to change their hu- human resources function. So they're not only just filling these five jobs that are now coming available, but they're knowing are all these clerks going to be replaced by a new application? And then who do I need to run the new applications and what qualifications do they have? How should we adapt our processes for recruiting to fill that gap? That's just one example, but that's going to happen across our whole economy if we're going to be smart about it. And then I can only say that's in the United States. In other countries, this is going to happen too, and it's going to be a lot harder in poorer countries where people don't have that as much access to data as we have. And then there's a difference between big companies and small companies. SMEs, you know, 20, 50 employees, the CEOs of those companies also don't have the time and the access to have an HR department, have a human resource department. So they will really benefit from the common good that can be provided by a state or federal or a local municipality that actually tries to pull this information together and help them understand what changes are coming. And that's how you can support economic development in your state or your community. And, you know, there have been efforts, and some people have been very successful in certain states in attracting investment. But now you're going to have to apply 
this added information needed on your workers and the skills they have to attract people to invest. Or if you invest, this junior college will work with you to train the workers to work at your manufacturing facility. Um all right. So if they let think tanks rule the world, this would be easy, right? We would just go out there and sort of implement this. But obviously, we live in democracies, and uh, we have different political systems. Um, you know, you're ambassador to Mexico. You sort of know the difficulties involved. Let, let's talk political, the, the political environment for a, a moment here. And, and the sort of things that the report is talking about and implying implies sort of a system of labor mobility, a system in which, in, you know, in theory, a, a company or companies could say, hey, we need this type of worker, and that worker in Mexico gets a visa, comes to the United States, or vice versa. In the current environment in which we find ourselves, in 2018, in which uh, we have a president of the United States who, to put it mildly, is probably not in favor of labor mobility, and we have a brand new, or we will have a brand new president in Mexico in, in a couple of months, um, who has taken more of a nationalist tone. Is there any chance that these recommendations are going to gain traction at the national level in, in say, the next two years? Well, I think there's a lot we can do by just learning best practices from each other. And that really doesn't threaten anybody. It's what's the best way to make sure your workers have the skills that are needed for the industries that, that you have or hope to have. So we can learn from each other about that. How do universities and businesses and the government best work together to promote that? It does get more complicated when you then start looking at, well, what workers do you need because no one in my economy is ready to fill that, that gap? And you're going to have to have a balance between training domestic workers and then in some instances identify, no, we really do need now some either skilled or maybe basically unskilled workers to come in and do these kind of jobs because people don't want to do them in our society, i.e. in the United States. For example, right now Canada and Mexico have a very well-functioning temporary worker pro program where tens of thousands of Mexicans go each year up for the agricultural harvest in Canada. They help out and they go back. Nope. You know, no problem. It meets the needs on both sides. So there are different programs you could agree on. Uh, and we going used to have forward. a program ourselves, the uh, Bracero program, uh, back in the 50s and 60s, right? I, I remember similar. the yeah. Bracero program, <laughs> yes. And so, but, but I think the key thing is just having a discussion where you methodically work through these areas, see what makes sense for the good of your economy, and then try to work things out. And that's what I, where I hope we can get over the next couple of years on, on some of these issues. And uh, hopefully we'll at least have some ideas ready so that in five years maybe the political environment will look much more different. Uh, the, the, but we're almost out of time. But one uh, item that uh, doesn't appear in your report because it's a whole separate item, but that's the issue of demographic change, which is going to feed into this because if you, if you look at the United States – you know, we're below what demographers call replacement rate in terms of uh, birth rate. And uh, Mexico is very close to being below that number as well. So 10, 20 years from now, we're going to start seeing the effects of just not enough people, period, uh, to do jobs, regardless of whether they got the skills or not. Um, and that, I think, is going to feed into this idea of labor mobility or workforce development across the continent as we need to shift and fill those needs 
uh, at, a, at a sort of hemispheric level that um, it will become even more acute. Well, that's right. And that's why a number of these studies looking at future needs in, in the job market are really interesting. For example, care is, a, is a, of, of older humans. It's an important area where you do need people who are willing to do that, able to do it well, won't be tremendously high paying, but will be very important to increasing number of our citizens. And so how are you going to fit, fill those needs? Is this really something we'll have enough workers for? You have to look at that seriously and then look for alternatives if you, if you don't have that. And it's going to be true for all the economies of North America. Canada, for example, has relied heavily on immigration and still does to meet a number of its needs from all over the world. They uh, have an, a pretty high level of immigrants that come in. Mexico, on the other hand, has not. But they're now getting a lot of migrants from Central America. And so they have to adapt to that. So all of North America in its own way has to face these issues the and work them through. Um, Ambassador Wayne, thank you very much for joining me this morning. This is an excellent report. Uh, congratulations to you and to the Wilson Center for putting out a, you know, a great study. And uh, look forward to having you back on the show. Thanks, Richard. It's been a pleasure. 